Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. Welcome to the Black Hall Studios podcast. We here at the podcast are just as happy as you are that 2020 is in the rearview mirror. The studio is a ghost town for six months, and I'm happy to say we're filming multiple projects now. Along the way, we had to re-engineer our entire HVAC system to provide for the safety of our movie crews. Yeah, I'm looking forward to 2021 bringing us all a little more prosperity. We begin our second year of this podcast, and I'm as excited today as I was in the beginning. Thank you for listening in, and know that we definitely appreciate you being here with us. Today I get to welcome writer, author, and cultural satirist Joel Stein back to the Black Hall Studios podcast. Described as an all-American Jewish boy from California, Stein proclaimed on this podcast that he would be happy to step in as the czar of California during the pandemic. He said, I'm amazing when asked about his skill level at homeschooling his son in Spanish when he didn't even speak the language. And then, on the topic of American political corruption, Stein wisely noted, I see a lot of people trying to get into America, not trying to get out. I want to catch up with Joel and talk about his recent series, Best Presidency Ever, on Will Ferrell's Funny or Die Network, and check in with him on some recent articles for The Hollywood Reporter, like How I Made Up With My Agent and How I Mourned Quibi. That should be a good one. And I want to pull back the curtain on Joel's controversial AARP interview with George Clooney. Born in 1971... I guess Joel is the perfect age to write for AARP. You can join when you're 50. I welcome an interesting, funny man, Joel Stein. We pick up right where we left off and dive right in. Joel, welcome. How are you? Fantastic. Fantastic. I mean, relative to a year-long pandemic, etc., yeah, does it feel different? It feels the same to me. It feels like Groundhog Day when it comes to that's what my sister keeps pandemic. saying. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it's like to live in a place that's on real lockdown because in Georgia there's barely any COVID according yeah. to the government uh, plans. So what is your life like? We also made like a pretty extreme decision and never recalibrated. I mean, my family. So even like I picked up some food in Santa Monica on Sunday for my wife's. It was like a festival out there. Like it was packed with people eating outside and walking around. And so I don't know how lockdowny it is in LA. Well, they've been locked. You know, there was there was a time when LA was on major lockdown. I was out there at a time and stayed at the Four Seasons. Oh, and could barely could barely get any service. And we went. We couldn't even. There weren't even restaurants open. It was on oh, such really? lockdown. But I know it's. But I but I know it's kind of gone gone in in waves. Wait, you couldn't get takeout, or you just couldn't go out to a restaurant. Couldn't go out to a restaurant. You can get takeout, yeah. But you couldn't. We couldn't go out, and we couldn't sit down. And I mean, literally, the whole place was. I haven't. I haven't flown anywhere. I haven't stayed at a hotel. I haven't gone to a restaurant. I haven't even hung out with friends. Like I in a year. In a year. Come on. I haven't done anything. You haven't gone, hung out with friends. Gone on a trip. Um, I shouldn't say that. I've had. Uh, I went on one hike with a friend, and then like, um, yeah. There's been. We did a couple of outdoor things, but like, 
you know, half dozen maybe. You haven't been on a plane. Definitely haven't been no on trip. a plane or a restaurant or um, see my family or, yeah, anything like that. Do you live in the Palisades? Is that what you told me? Or Brentwood? No, no. Uh, east side till I die. Uh, I live in the Hollywood Hills. Hollywood. Okay, Hollywood. Yeah, like, no, no. I never <laughs> venture to that side of the 405. It's so interesting because I never go to the other side, except I did to pick up this meal in Santa Monica. But um, it's weird. But when I lived in Manhattan, like I never went to the east side. I'm um, the upper east side. It's Understood. Weird. I mean, that LA is like that. I mean, I, when, when I used to have an office in Beverly Hills and the idea of going to Brentwood was like, do I have to really? Like, why do and I have to Like yeah. the the one place or one of the few places where you can go both both ways, if you will. Like you can you can kind of go to the east or the west side from there. No, that's right. But if you live not on the west side, yeah, and you live in Beverly Hills or West Hollywood, then the idea of going there seems bananas. Yeah, even more like so. Spe- for me. Special occasion. It is. It is. It oh, feels yeah. like going on vacation. Uh, we're recording, right? And even I yeah, like, yeah, I like, we're recording. I like jumping into right this. In. I, I love that part we'll of the podcast. We'll worry about an intro later. <laughs> okay. So I love that part of the podcast where people are like, are we recording? Um, uh, me, my, this is a super obnoxious thing, but my friend Josh Tierengill and I used to, when we lived in Manhattan, we used to play an obnoxious game called um, Upper East Side or Los Angeles. And we had to track which place we went to more that year. <laughs> Los Angeles as in downtown or all of all of everything that wasn't... Uh, well, we like lived in Manhattan. Or... We lived downtown. And it was like, had you been to the Upper East Side more this year or flown to Los Angeles uh, more this year? Yeah. Right, right, right. Got it, got it, got it. Guaranteed it was Los Angeles. It was always Los Angeles. Going to the Upper nobody East Side. Nobody goes to the Upper East Side. Yeah, if you're not from the Upper East Side, nobody goes there. But until And it was hard. Like, you had to transfer trains. Like, it wasn't easy. I had a bike. So when my dad, my dad lived on the Upper East Side for a little bit, so I was able to like bike to see him. But that was the only way. I think they did that on purpose. Made it hard, made it to, get, hard to, to get there. Keep these people apart from each other. Correct. It's like it's like why Beverly Hills doesn't have any mass transit. I feel like that's true about um, the beach communities and the East Side. Like the people in Manhattan Beach shouldn't mix with my people, and so it's hard to get to each place. <laughs> Do you know who used to live in in uh, Manhattan Beach? Uh, is um, Wait, I'm gonna guess uh, Pete Carroll, athlete. Oh, Pete Carroll, yeah, good enough. Pete Carroll is is less Hollywood Hills and more Manhattan Beach. That's for sure. Yeah. He's, he's quintessentially Manhattan Beach. Yeah, anytime I ever interviewed an athlete, it was always like, oh, good, I'm going down to Manhattan Beach. It'll be fun. Speaking <laughs> of lived within a block of each other down there. Well, because they, you know, they somebody liked it, and then they told their friends, and so they all said, oh, we should all do it down there. Oh my god! I was an athlete, and I like felt comfortable with my body and like using it. I would totally be by the beach. It'd be awesome. Excuse to be half naked or three quarters. Yeah, playing beach volleyball, eating things that go with beer, It'd be awesome. <laughs> um, speaking of interviews, I read your article in the AARP with George Clooney. Oh, are you that age? No. <laughs> no, Sarah. Well, you know, uh, you might be. How old are you? Forty-six. Okay, so no, you're not there yet. But Not I, yet. I'm 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 an undergraduate degree away. That's what I heard. I had no idea that you could join AARP at 50. Well, it turns out, as I was warned, so they called me and asked me to write this thing, and they warned me that at 49 and a half, which I would hit before the article came out, they start sending you stuff. And indeed, like right when this article came out, I got something in the mail from AARP asking me. You know, if I wanted the magazine to join because I had just turned 49 and a half. Like, they didn't miss it by a day. And how'd you feel about that? I'm old. I feel old. I felt old since I had a kid. Um, 
that that was the least of my problems. Is why I felt about it as far as aging. I think though that sixty is the new forty. I have uh, so many friends who are sixty and they and they're, they act so young. It's interesting seeing my parents. I've been reading. This is an obnoxious thing to say, uh, but I'll say lots of obnoxious things. So you've been reading a lot of history, and I, I have an idea of what an 80-year-old person looked like not long ago. And my dad's 80, my mom's 75, and they, they don't look or act like, not to say people still, you know, you can read the obits, plenty of people, tons of people still die in their 70s, obviously. But yeah, they're still they're able to do a lot more than uh, and look a lot younger than people used to. And I, I'm not entirely sure what that's all about because I'm not sure we're living any healthier, but we must be. Just nutrition or not being in the sun. It, or, yeah, it's got to be a combination of nutrition and a lot less abuse, right? Body bodily abuse relative to the amount of work. Oh, of course. I think people just worked a lot harder. People. Lives were really hard throughout all of human history. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I guess you think physical labor would be good for you, but I guess the same way that sports are conceptually good for you, but then you wind up like having blown out knees. I bet all that physical labor wasn't good for you. And it came with so much alcohol. Like you forget just how much people drank, especially men. Um, Unbelievable amounts. It was, it was like a constant. And I think they lived at like blood alcohol level 0.12. There was this thing in factories called the Elevenses, where at 11 a.m. you got a break to go drink whiskey. That's funny. That, that's what they do at hunting trips in England. They call it Elevenses, and they start drinking alcohol. With really? Guns, 100%. By the way, two of the worst times to drink alcohol have to be factories and hunting. Right? Yeah. But I think it goes back so far on, on the English, they call it shooting, right? But they, they, on the shooting side, it goes back so far to a, a, a world where people didn't even consider that to be unsafe. So it's just, now it's culturally acceptable. Do you think it was also, like the 11th is when Dick Cheney got shot in the face? <laughs> I don't think well, they didn't do that in America. Just like in America, they wear bright orange when they go hunting. Yep. When they go shooting in England, there's no bright orange. That's very, very crass. Yeah, it's a if you're so dumb, if you're so orange. dumb, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the prisoners in every other country like England, they just wear normal clothes. Is that real? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. You go. In fact, I was watching some kind of documentary or something with my son. And he's like, oh, why are they not in prison clothes? This is a movie, I think, but the prison in England. I'm like, oh, I've been to a prison in England. They just wear clothes. Like, that's how it works in most of the world. Well, I was with a buddy of mine the other day, and he was telling the story about training with the Navy SEALs. And he made some reference to man jammies. I said, what are man jammies? He's like, you know, that stuff the guys in the Middle East wear. He goes, I had to put on man jammies. I said, really? He goes, yeah, I was role playing for them. Like I had to go and like be in these rooms and barricade myself in. And I had to try to like fight them off. And they had to come in and, you know, take there's care of this, me. There's this. Um, so my first book was about trying to learn how to become a man because I was having uh, my wife was about to give birth to our first kid. And we found out it was a boy. And I quickly realized I was in no way fit to raise a boy. So I did all this man stuff. Um, and one of them was I did three days of boot camp at uh, Fort Knox, and, I, and they let me fire a tank, this General Mark Hurtling. And uh, there's uh, not in Fort Knox, but they've built a, basically a fake Fallujah, a fake Middle East city, and, uh, and they have half the team role play. This is a while ago, I should say. My son's 11 now. And, uh, but they would role play each side, so half, half the team would be in man jammies. Uh, and the other half 
you know, would be American soldiers. But it was, it was very realistic looking from what I saw. I've got a cultural question for you. You, 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 know, you, you spent a lot of time in New York and you spent a lot of time in uh, Jewish communities, I would guess, with uh, all your friends in New York. I had a, a Jewish buddy of mine on the podcast named Steak Shapiro. He was a very well-known. Right. Yeah, you know Steak Shapiro? No, what's his first name? Steak. Steak. Like I went to a steakhouse. How, how do you have a first name like Steak? I, you know, he got that nickname somewhere early in his career, I think, you know, as like a hazing process by one of the older um, radio personalities. And they okay. just started oh. referring to this young intern as, hey, steak. Like, hey, me. Radio is amazing. Everyone's like, it's, it's Timmy and the egg. It's, it's, it's always, <laughs> you know. It's, it's the truth. But so anyway, yeah. Steak and I were, were talking about um, guns. And it was really fascinating. To me. He's like, I've never shot a gun. No, and I started thinking about why is that? That's what I was going to ask you about. Like, why is it? Well, I'm going to ask you this question, and then I'm going to ask you a, a different question. But the first question is, why is it that it, it seems like in America, right? In America, yep. Jews yep. don't shoot guns, but in Israel, they all know Krav Maga and have multiple uh, oh, yeah. semi-automatic weapons in their house, loaded. Oh yeah, ready. To when you have a, in Israel, when you get your bris, they also give you an Uzi. For sure. It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Got a lot so, of enemies around. Do you want to talk about the difference between Middle Eastern Jews and American Jews? Because it's enormous. Just, no, no, it's enormous, but only as it comes to guns. And specifically, it's the why, same thing. Here, it, it, well, let me ask the second question, and then, because then they're going to tie together, which I said to Steak, I said, how amazing is it? Because I asked him, I said, when he told me he never shot a gun, I said, have you ever learned a martial arts? He said, no. No. And I said, so how amazing of a commentary on the U.S. military making you feel so secure somehow that you could grow up as a Jew in America, never learn a martial art and never shoot a gun, and yet the Jews in Israel are trained in every kind of self-defense you could imagine. Oh, I see. The U.S. government making us free from uh, attack from other countries, not from within our own. Not, not correct. Crime. Um, yeah, yeah, correct. Not, not yeah. correct. That, that has to do with, you know, domestic tranquility and like policing. But I'm talking about like, somehow the Jews in America feel so comfortable with their safety in America that they don't need to learn martial arts or shoot guns. Um, I think Americans in general feel very safe from outside attack. And in fact, when 9-11 happened, you could see what happens when there's any breach of that. I mean, we're not we have no expectation of any kind of attack because we haven't, we haven't experienced that since 1812, right? Um, mm -hmm. When we asked for it ourselves. So yes, I think the Jews feel safe from attack. I don't know if Jews feel safe uh, from everything in America, but yeah, I think, I think uh, you know, if you're in Israel and, and there's an existential threat to the existence of the country, that's, you know, debated in the UN and certainly debated through rocket mortar, you, you have to go to the army, literally. You know, it's, it's one of those countries where you have to be in the army. And I think just tribally, the people, no, obviously a lot of Israelis came from, you know, Russia or Germany or England or the U.S., but, but still a lot of them were already there and they were Middle Eastern. And those, those people are, uh, they're a different breed. I mean, you can look at them. They're way better looking than American Jews. Like they're just a different group of people and they are, they are tough and they are, uh, blunt and they are not neurotic and you know they do not understand this woody allen concept that new york jews have propagated um you know here in america as a cultural phenomenon 
So, yeah, I think these are different people. And Jews in America haven't learned to shoot guns because they haven't lived in rural areas. I mean, I bet the, I bet the Jews down there have shotguns. Is that what do you know, like Atlanta? In the South, well, I, you know, it's, I think it's still out of the cultural norm. So when I think of like the South, guns are such a normalized part yep. of, of a lot of Southern culture, whether it's shooting sporting clays or shooting rifles or shooting handguns. It's it's uh, so commonplace for people to even have concealed carry permits and have you know be packing nine millimeters in a in a normal business setting with a business suit on, and it's almost seen as, by by a lot of Southerners as a fundamental Americanism that is the honoring of the Second Amendment put in place by the founding fathers that they maintain a gun culture and a uh, a self-defense culture and i haven't seen that in the jewish i haven't seen that in the jewish culture in the south yet so my great uncle used to conceal carry in new york city but that's because he and my grandfather started this vending business um vending machines and so they carried around a lot of cash and he would he was the guy in charge of going to the bank so he had like a three-piece suit like very meyer lansky and carried a, a gun under there um I also had a cousin who was a cop, and she kept a purse, a gun in her purse in New York City. But other than that, I mean, my my sister's husband, who's not Jewish, is into like is very into guns and hunting, and his guns in his house. And there's nothing that freaks my family out more. Like they, if you live in cities, guns are aren't about hunting, and they're not even they have a different connotation and a different use. So I think that's why Jews don't have guns, you know, because they mostly live in New York, LA, Chicago. But I bet the ones in, you know, there's plenty of Jews down South. And I wonder if they're more part of that culture. So you think that it has to do with the fact that they don't associate guns with providing for the common defense, like as a, as a measure, a, a, a second amendment measure to both protect America and protect Americans from the possibility of, of, um, despotism you think well, now, it has to do with the fact that they associate guns with just gun violence in cities yeah and I, now i'm just no this is yeah, no, no, this is all just ideas i mean come on. yeah so this is even more far-fetched but <laughs> i also suspect that the idea of a unregulated militia that aids the government against foreign attack has played out very differently in jewish history so if you think Fair about enough. what un unregulated militias have done to Jews, it, it, it's never worked out well for them. Like if you look at the Cossacks or Hitler's arm, you know, personal army, or, you know, the people who took up guns took them up against Jews, not for Jews. Right. I mean, that's kind of like that argument about like, well, I grew up with a dad who's an alcoholic, so of course I'm an alcoholic. Or I grew up with a dad who's an alcoholic, so of course I'm not an alcoholic. On some level, I hear that. I'm like, man, I would think that they would be in a country where there was so much freedom around guns, you would, I would think that they would want to be trained well in guns and very comfortable with guns so that they couldn't be taken advantage of by guns. Yeah, and I've heard that argument, but if every Jew in Poland had a gun, there wouldn't have been, you know, there would have been about the same amount of people who went to concentration camps. There's only so many red barons in the world. Most, most people are going to lose out to larger numbers, and I don't think that's their problem, is not having guns well, or not knowing Krav Maga. Well, except for I read this really interesting article a few years ago about how there were, and these numbers aren't going to be exactly right, but 
there were about 800,000 registered hunters just in the state of Wisconsin. And they were talking about how that would make Wisconsin, if you just took all the hunters in Wisconsin and made them an army, they would be one of the largest standing armies on the planet, just Wisconsin. So who knows what would, what would have taken place had... Oh, the, but you've talked to your friends. Who's talk to your friend who's Navy SEAL and ask him what he thinks of those 800,000 hunters in a fight. Like, <laughs> well, no, honestly, sure. I've talked to people yeah. in the military and they're like, you know, we don't need many people to take out every person with a gun in America. Like, they're just, you know, they're just, there's a difference. They're professionals. That's Look, right. When, when Theodore Roosevelt wanted to get his Rough Riders back together to go to World War I as part of his preparedness, because America was not prepared. I mean, look at America with a military a real military before World War One, They just weren't prepared. Like there's, there's a big difference between owning a gun and being an army. It has very little to do with your ability to pull a trigger. I mean, yeah, my three days in boot camp taught me that. Like they teach you how to work as a unit. They teach, I mean, yeah, it, it's a, there's a huge difference. Yeah. Between a, tra- a trained army and an untrained guy with a gun. Or even just a militia, just a bunch of, you know, you, even, even with a lot of training, you've seen that, training videos of al-Qaeda. It's like, that's what they're doing? Like, they wouldn't have stood a chance. Like, they had to do something that was terrorist-like. Because even, even with the amount of money they had and the training, it was like they were, they were it, would look, it would look like they were 100 years behind us. Yeah, except for, think about the major countries, Russia, the United States, that have had so much problem in Afghanistan because of the geography yeah. and the guerrilla warfare tactics. I mean, you can go back to the beginning of this country. Yeah, the guerrilla warfare tactics and the Revolutionary War had a huge impact on it's very hard uh, to the fight against the organized British, right? Exactly. The home field advantage is enormous, but enormous. Also, those those tribes in Afghanistan have been fighting for well over a hundred years. They're not untrained, Um, and the Vietnam were not untrained. They they were armies, unlike the Wisconsin hunters. Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of guys who were. Who are, who are pretty casual but trained hunters, and they are better with guns than you may ever give them credit, and may and and may have. No, no, no. I'm sure they are, and, and maybe some of them could become snipers. But there's a difference between your ability to use a gun is not what makes an army. That's right. But your ability to use a gun, if you are multitudes, if you're eight hundred thousand hunters, it's still a problem. Even I for, I mean, it's not a problem for an American army with all of the, the modern weaponry that we have. But if you're, if you're just going infantry and you don't get to use tanks, it's still a lot of bodies to have to try to deal with. No, no, no. There's a, lot a difference of harm. between having a gun and protecting your home, you know, in a guerrilla warfare style and organizing 800,000 people together. I mean, organizing Agreed. the three people in my house to go for a walk during the pandemic takes like 20 minutes. <laughs> Like you can't really underestimate how difficult organizing human beings is. I mean, you can tell from what's going on in this country right now. Organizing people just to wear a mask is impossible. So, I, you know, I was reflecting on this whole city life, country life notion that you brought up. And it made me think of, um, I, you know, I, I recently bought an, another semi-automatic weapon. It's a, it's a really beautiful AR-15 that, that shoots 5.56, which is like NATO round. and which is I like had it weapon. out. It's a NATO. It's a NATO two two three or five five six, right? It's a, what is the NATO? It's mean? A, uh, NATO is the, it's a specific round that uh, is approved by NATO. Right? Oh, and, and it's and it's used very commonly uh, in NATO, and so the five five six round is often referred to as a NATO round. So 
anyway, I've got this gun sitting out on my dining room table because I, you know, I'd, I'd just gotten it from one of my uh, gun dealers. I mean, totally legal gun dealer, obviously, but my gun dealer brought it by my house and dropped it off and it was on my dining room table. And my 16 year old daughter who lives in Los Angeles walked by it and she says, that's disgusting. I was like, the gun? Like, yeah, it's disgusting. Like, why would you have a, why would you need that? You know, and she's already, you know, but then in, con- in contrast, and, and this was totally separate, like they had, they had no idea, the, my fiance and my daughter had no idea that they um, both had commented on this. My fiance sees the gun. Now I'm not there, but she texts me. She's like, she sends me a picture of the gun. And she's like, that is so sexy. <laughs> I thought, like, you can't get a better contrast in culture. Very interesting. I think they're both reacting the exact same way, just having different opinions about their reaction. Also, one's your daughter and one's your fiance. So they have inherently different reactions to the same. It's an overt display of masculinity by someone who clearly has a very small penis. And I think, <laughs> um, I think that they have, you know, different reactions to that same thing, right? Like, like your daughter's probably, I'm going to guess, her being younger and living in LA, more of a, a feminist than your fiance. Well, it depends how you define feminist, but yes, I think in the in the the most modern, typical notion of what it means to be a feminist, for sure, my sixteen year old daughter would fit that mold more. What's the definition where your fiance fits it more? Well, if the definition of feminist is searching for the archetype of femininity, then I would have a hard time arguing that my sixteen year old daughter is somehow doing that more effectively than my uh, fiance, who is absolutely committed to trying to understand her own soul and the universe at a level of depth that gives her insight and actual experience of the fullness of her own femininity. That's a, that, that is not a, uh, that is your own definition of feminism that I don't think many people would ascribe <laughs> uh, to. So it's that. Yeah, so t- yeah tell me. You, you're saying that your, your fiance might be more of a feminist because she's acting more traditionally female. No, not more traditionally. I'm, what I'm saying is she is searching for the archetype of her own feminine soul and trying to live into that. And I'm not making a judgment about what those actions would or would not be. But I'm, was, but I'm also hesitant LA to not talk. call her. I don't know what those words mean. Like, what is, it, what is searching her soul for her feminine identity? Like, what is well, that? So, and, and because I'm not female, I don't know exactly what kind of female voice is happening in the soul as she searches for her own voice, her own female voice. But um, what she tells me is that she is doing spiritual work to try to deeply tap into her deepest feminine self and her deepest feminine energy and to then manifest that in a life that is her most deeply feminine joy. I find that now, when people I, don't know what they're talking about, they use words like manifest and soul. Like, what, what is she doing? <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, she's trying to find the, the happiness of being feminine. Now, again, like I'm trying to, I, and I get that, I'm trying to find happiness in my masculinity. Like, what is the fullness of my masculinity? Where, why is it that I find joy in weaponry? Why is it I find joy in... Uh, competition? Why is it I find joy in, um, you know, male camaraderie of one form or another that might be sport or might be 
drinking games, I, you know, whatever. And, I, and you have to ask yourself, why do I like this? Well, maybe it's just part of my masculinity that I still do find delight occasionally. <laughs> really? Like quarters or what? Beer no, or what's no. going on? No, 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 no. It'd be, it'd probably, it'd be more along the lines of like, uh, playing poker with friends and losers have to drink or something. Oh, if wow. losers have to drink every fifth round or something, you know, something dumb like that. Interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, and what are the feminine things that she's into? Well, I mean, she, again, like, I don't, I don't necessarily think it has to do with um, cultural norm, I think, but she taps into the fact that she loves to, uh, or she finds joy in caring deeply for nature. She finds joy in caring deeply for other people, right? And actually like um, nurturing them and, um, and taking care. She, she loves to cook, not because it's a role, but because she genuinely loves to share uh, beautiful meals with, with people. And she attributes a lot of that joy to something innately feminine, not to cultural norms. Do you, um, do you hunt? I do, yeah. Do you feel I mostly like bird hunt? Paper? I do. Yeah. But but maybe in a different way than her or is that just an overlap? I think I think she's definitely more of like she has more of that earth mother spirit where death is a, an experience that might be more like what you would see in the movie Avatar where it's like she wants to like join the creature and and hold its hand as it takes its last breath kind of like in a be like kind of a little bit emotionally overwhelming where um, I might not be as engaged in that process. And the emotional part of it. Well, just, yeah, the emotion of, of... But when you're out hunting, you, you get into the minds of the, the animals, I assume, right? Uh, mind, I mean, I, I, that, would, there, that would probably attribute too much self-awareness and soul to animals than I would naturally attribute. But certainly well, into the instincts of the animals. You yeah. have to get deep into the instincts of the animals, which, you know, I think is an amazingly... Yeah. Uh, beneficial process when you think about like athletic activity all the time um, in athletics in the psychology of athletics i think of the fact that you really just need to get deep in your own instincts and out of your mind yeah to find the best performance yeah you be in the present get into the flow then yeah instinctual response who's your i mean now i'm digressing we'll get back to the jews in a second but yeah. who when you look at in history when you look at an athlete you're like oh my god that that ability to be instinctual ability and the ability to be in the present is just overwhelming. I don't think there's anybody better than Michael Jordan in that. I think Michael Jordan, for whatever reason, yeah. could just center himself so deeply into the present, not caring one iota about the actual outcome, and yet still in the total present, giving everything to victory. I, I, don't, I don't think there's a better example of that. I think, I think that's one of the reasons why, even though he's, you know, LeBron James is clearly a better human specimen yeah. of an athlete than Michael Jordan. And yet I think it's really hard for people to want to attribute the level of will to win and animalistic instinct to win to LeBron that Michael Jordan had, that, that eye of the tiger, that killer instinct that was just. Yeah, that's a little, yes. And, and I'm sure you're right. Cause I, don't, I know less about sports than you do. Um, but he's definitely has that killer instinct more, but, as far as that just instinctual presentness, maybe this just attributes, this is just because I'm so white, but um, Wayne Gretzky to me freaks me out. Like where he was on the ice never entirely made sense to me, but it was always wound up being the right place. And he just, Genius. 
yeah, instinctual. Yeah, genius. but it wasn't even like looking forward. It was just being more present somehow and knowing what is happening, which allows you to know what's happening to move to the next thing. It was weird. Well, think about how like you so you have the kind of mind that you have really good instincts about the consequences of ideas or, you know, how things are moving from an idea standpoint. Yeah. Which I think, you know, I think that's a, a natural gift that when you take that same ability and oftentimes, you know, people that have that, that ability walk around the world and they're like, why are people so dense? Like, why do they not get this? Why is this such a struggle? And it, it feels like people are so behind when it comes to the yeah. implications of ideas. I yelled ideas. at my sister yesterday, which was obnoxious for this reason. Okay, right. So I think that because I've, I've had, you know, quite a few friends who are very, very good athletes and played professional sports and, you know, had, had world, you know, Hall of Fame careers. And in getting to know them as humans, I started to realize like their athletic ability and the way they interact with the physical space and the physical world is the same way that a guy like Joel Stein interacts with ideas, where you're just like, how the hell do you not see this? And they're like, how the hell did you not see that his finger was twitching? And every time his finger twitches, he throws a curveball. Yeah, you see He's been doing it for years. Players. Yeah, you see it. I see it more with, because I don't have this, I see it more with math geniuses uh, who can kind of see, they kind of just see where the equation is flowing in a different way than, than just grinding it out. It, it is weird. Well, they almost, done, you know, and math geniuses on many levels, it feels like they don't have to grind it out because they kind of just, no, they, they understand the, the flow of the concepts and where yes. it's going. And they are, they're eliminating right. possibilities in the same way. It's interesting. Right. Well, it's a way that I experience you with ideas where you just naturally understand the implications of how these things. Yeah. Work. And when you're interested in something and you have something of a natural ability, you tend to dwell on it. So you tend to like read more history or, you know, whatever it is that gives you even more information that doubles down on it. The way the practicing a sport kind of does the same thing. So this is totally random, but in that AARP article, right. I read that you were going to buy. I read that you were going to buy a Flowbee. Are you a natural with it? But did you actually buy a Flowbee? Are you kidding? So, your own so, hair? Oh, it was so frustrating writing for the AARP because um, I've interviewed Clooney a couple times, and one of the things he told me during the call, I just started asking about his hair because it looked it looked great, and he told me he wasn't going out and doing anything, and. Uh, he also told me he never wears makeup, even on movies. He told me a couple things that were like crazy. But one of them was, he was like, no, I, I cut my own uh, hair. I'm like, you do not. Because I'd read that he cut his kid's hair. I, I believe that. And then he was like, yeah, I've always cut my own hair. I'm like, what are you talking about? You have to be on television. You're not, you know, in movies, you're not cutting your own hair. He's, and he yells for his assistant who's on the Zoom of many, many years. He's like, do I cut my own hair? You tell him what I cut my own hair with. She's like, a floby. I'm like, yeah, 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 right. He's like, I have, I have a Flowbee. She just went on eBay and bought me a new one because mine's worn out. And I, I remember as a journalist, I'm like, oh, this is my story. Like the fact that George Clooney uses a Flowbee, I'm going to get some attention for this. Uh, who, that was George? the highlight of the article for me. I mean, I thought that oh was cool. Oh, my God. I'm like, who's I'm like, breaking George me? Clooney news in 2021? Or I guess it was the end of 2020. And, um, and then because of my overreaction to this Flowbee information, he then goes on you know, CBS Sunday morning, every, every magazine, every TV show and talks about the Flowbee. I sh and I made the horrible mistake of not keeping my cool about the Flowbee. Um, I guess I didn't know he hadn't, he hadn't told anyone. Uh, I was so, I just kept seeing the Flowbee information come out of his mouth because he knew it was such a hit. And I was like, 
God damn it. And then my editor at ARP didn't believe the Floby thing, like wouldn't believe it. And I couldn't prove it, right? So he was like kind of buried it down in the story anyway. It was very so, – so I was going to buy a Floby to cut my hair because I've only gotten one haircut outside of my driveway during the pandemic, and which was kind of awkward actually. And um, But no, I kind of looked into the Floby more and um, – you know, we live in LA, so I can get, do it outside. So I don't think I need the, the cleanup aspect of the Floby. I think I'm just going to buy one of those, um, you know, just I'm just going to shave my head, I think, which I've done before. I did it when I did that, you know, I did that thing at Fort Knox, and I did another thing for that book with the Marines. And, uh, you know, I don't look great with a shaved head, but it seems like the easiest thing. Now, are you talking about a shaved head like a number two or a number one, or are you talking about like Mr. Clean? You know, it's funny. I've gotten to like number whatever they do in the army, number one or whatever. But um, I've never got Mr. Clean. I've always wanted to. So yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but this might be my opportunity to do that. It might, it might be. You know, the funny thing about the Floby, when I read that, I had, I actually have an uncle who is a, uh, a rancher in Nebraska and he's the only person I've ever known who used a Floby. Interesting. But he, Does he love it? But he loved it. He loved He loves anything that's self-sufficient. Yes. Yeah. And so the idea that he could actually like have a haircut that looked like a normal hair. His hair, it, 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 the funny part about it, and as soon as I read that part of the article, I went back and looked at the picture of George, and I thought, oh, well, my uncle has that same haircut. <gasps> God, I, wish, <laughs> I wish I had talked to you before, the ARP editor. But yeah, that's a big part of Clooney, is self-sufficiency. Like, years ago, Clooney came to my house for dinner for an article for a Time Magazine cover, because my thought was, I've never seen that. Like, I have a couple ideas in my head of, profiles when, when you're profiling a super famous person it's very hard to make it fresh and so i had a bunch of stupid thoughts that he didn't go for and the one he went for was having me make dinner from my house with my wife so he comes over and we're eating dinner and uh and this beeping starts to go off and i just try and ignore it because you know that's my general solution to everything plus i have a famous person in my house and it's awkward so he's he kept he keeps asking what the beeping is and i was like i don't know I really didn't know. And he's like, well, we, this could be a problem. We've got to solve this. And he's like, so he's looking all around the house. He's, he's like, I think it might be coming from your attic. And uh, I had never, ever been in my attic before at this house I owned. And in fact, there wasn't like, it didn't have one of those um, ladders you pull down. So he's like, we need a ladder. So I was like, oh, it's like way underneath the house because it's a house built on a hill. And so he's like, let's go get it. So we go get this ladder super late at night and uh, we put it up and he, I have this, um, I had a video camera back then before phones had shot video. So I videotaped this drunkenly. Um, it's on the web somewhere, but he puts like a flashlight between his teeth and he's like, I used to be a handyman. This is no big deal. So he goes into my attic that I, that I have never been in and still have never been in. In fact, we called it the Clooney attic after that. So he goes into the attic and he's looking around and he can't find it. And he comes down and then he like, we go back to dinner and he goes underneath the table and it's one of those carbon monoxide uh, things. And he's like, it's, it's this and either it needs new batteries or we have minutes to live. And luckily, <laughs> luckily, they just need new batteries. It was, as far as I can tell from the life of Clooney and myself <laughs> and my wife, uh, it was just the batteries. Well, you know, I've, I've heard that he is one of the most down to earth superstars you'll ever meet. Yeah. You think that's true? I do. The only two, I have a couple of, of points of data on that. One was 
the very night after I interviewed him, I had to write the story really quickly. So I was kind of, and it was a long story. So I was kind of grinding it out and ignoring my wife and feeling badly about that. And so the next night I was like, look, let's, um, let's go out to dinner. Let's go to that sushi, that obscure sushi place in the Valley that Clooney mentioned that he loves. And uh, I'll expense it. I'll just lie on my expense report to say it was with Clooney. And she's like, okay, let's go. So we go, we get to the, the strip mall that it's at because I live in Los Angeles. And I see a, um, there's only one car in the parking lot because it's a little early and it's a uh, electric Lexus. And I was like, and Cassandra's like, oh no. I was like, I don't think Clooney's going to be here right now. And she's like, we should leave. Because she, she had honestly had enough Clooney by that point. And she just wanted to hang out <laughs> with me. And so we walk into the restaurant. There's one table eating there. And it's Clooney and three of his friends. And so they're like, hey. Um, and he's like, sit with us. You got to sit with us. So it's hard to turn down an assistant George, insistent George Clooney. So we sit with him. And uh, it's his friends. And one's like this grizzled, you know, a grip or something with a beard who's been his friend for like 30 years and his wife and Clooney's girlfriend at the time. And I'm like, oh, this is how he lives. Like, these are his buddies. And then uh, the other time was I was shoot, Time Magazine was shooting some like pre-Oscars thing where they take pretty pictures and try and sell them magazines. And, you know, everyone, you know, Meryl Streep, everyone's showing up with their publicist and some kind of makeup person in their entourage. And, and we're sending, you know, Lincoln Town Cars or whatever the equivalent at that point was for them. And then I see 20 minutes before he's supposed to be there, the electric Lexus. And it's just Clooney. He's just driven himself in, shows up early. Like, and he showed up early for my Zoom call. So, yeah, I think he's pretty, pretty low maintenance. And he flew me yeah, to there. Did you hear the story about him delivering uh, suitcases of million dollars of cash to, like, his 12 yeah, that's closest in my friends? I, inter- so I interviewed Randy Gerber, who's, you know, married to Cindy Crawford and started this, you know, opened all these nightclubs. Casa Amigos. Yeah. Yeah, but he started. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Randy, Randy did all the nightclubs. Yep, yep. Yeah, so I so I called Randy Gerber because he was one of the I found that he was one of the people that got the uh, the suitcase full of a million dollars. So I had him retell me the whole story, which I put in that article. But the the one of the interesting things he told me, and the whole story is interesting. But when he opens the suitcase and sees it's a million dollars, you know Randy Gerber's super rich. So Randy Gerber said to Clooney, "This is before the tequila, but still, he's Randy Gerber." And so he says, you know, I can't take this. I can't take your million dollars. I don't need this. And Clooney says in front of everyone, some of whom are like grips or like old actor friends who didn't make it, who are his buddies. And he's like, if Randy doesn't take it, no one gets it. Okay. Ah. <laughs> so Gerber donated it to, to some charities, you know, some Cindy Crawford Foundation type thing. But uh, yeah, I thought that was a bold move. He was ready for it. Well, I mean, only a guy who had experienced a lot of life without money might, when he got a lot of money, do something like that for his friends. He's a big gesture guy. You, you probably have a friend like that, like who's always throwing big events and flying people, you know, or whatever the equivalent is, like creating events. And he also, at that point, didn't have a wife or kids, so I think he was thinking about his money a little differently. I could see that. I yeah. mean, the whole uh, Casa Amigos thing was a pretty amazing story. It's insane. With, uh, insane. What's, your, what, what's the version of that story that you know? The version that I kind of pieced together because they're slightly different from Randy Gerber, George Clooney, and some other people 
is that Randy Gerber and George Clooney buy a piece of property, basically in Cabo San Lucas, right near there, together, and they build houses next to each other so their families can hang out. Then they get super into tequila, and they decide that they want to make their own tequila for the house, like because the house is called um, Casa Amigos because it's you know two friends living in the same property. So they find they blend their own tequila. They found some company, and they're just using it to give people who come you know serve it in the house and give people as gifts who come to dinner. And then Randy Gerber is a little more business minded, even than Clooney. So he, who's pretty business-minded, and so he, they want, one version is they want to bring it to the U.S. to, to give to their friends here, and they can't bring it in any kind of large numbers uh, without proper licensing. So they apply for the licensing just to bring it to America and hand out in L.A. And then, as they're handing it out in L.A., Randy Gerber is like, gets, talks to a distributor. It's like, I wonder if we can sell this stuff. And, and then they start distributing it in pretty small numbers, and they never did any advertising. And then it caught on pretty big. And Diageo, which is, I believe, or at least it was, the biggest liquor company in the world, bought it off them for, I forgot how many billion. But I, I think... One, more, one billion. One billion. And, and, it's just one, it's one billion. I mean, and there's no VCs, one. there's no angel investors. It's just these three guys, Gerber, um, Clooney, and their other friend. And they, um, at, you know, who got involved later and they, so they sold it for a billion. It's pretty much their billion. Like there weren't other investors to take care of and they had to stay involved and they are involved, but it's a lot of, I mean, I imagine, I imagine that might be more money than Clooney's made as an actor in his whole life. I don't know. I would bet. I would bet. Yes. I mean, that's a, it's a huge amount of money. It's like 50 cent with the vitamin water. It's just weird how you can parlay celebrity into real money and other people don't obviously there's there are plenty of very famous people with no money it, it the, the correlation between fame and money is not direct at all no i mean the other guy that it seems like he's really uh starting to use his celebrity and make a lot of business moves is ryan reynolds oh yeah i kind of read something what did he do well you know he's he's starting to uh he well he started aviation gin which i believe he just sold he started uh, aviation he, gin well, I'm, again, again, this is the question, right? Just like the story you just told of Casamigos, that's not the same story I've I've heard, and who knows what the truth is, right? The, the, Wait, the story, story that I heard? heard, the story I heard, is that the third guy, whose name is Mike Meldman, yep. who's a very famous real estate guy who yep. uh, runs a company called Discovery Land Company, and who developed the community where Clooney and Gerber bought houses down in Cabo. He's, you know, he also runs the Yellowstone Club and he runs Baker's Bay and Discovery Land Company runs some of the most exclusive private resorts on the planet. And Mike said, you know, a, a very famous uh, entrepreneur and very famous in real estate circles for sure. And the story that I heard, which again, I have no idea which of these stories is the actual yep. facts. Um, you could call Colony and ask him, but the story I heard is that Meldman came up with this idea and said, you know what, we, you know, the way that we would really be able to roll this thing out is Gerber has all these connections in the bar industry yep. and George is just famous. So let's make a tequila and we'll make it a great tequila. And, you know, I'll really like oversee the entrepreneurial business side. And then you guys will, you know, profit too. 
And it was like a fun thing to do as friends. But but that Meldman, my my understanding is that Meldman was more of the driver, and those guys were a little bit more along for the ride. But it would be fascinating to know the truth there. I bet the truth is is all of the above that they were just making this to kill themselves in their house, the two of them, and then the third guy figured out how to make a business out of it. I mean that doesn't that doesn't go against anything anyone told me. Fair enough. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Because yeah. it because there is that hole in the story which is like somebody must be the driver on this thing. Right. And this my understanding is that it was Meldman. And and Meldman is a driver. Like he's a he's a yeah. creator and he's a blank sheet kind of thinker and he's got the energy for it and yeah. he's got the vision for it and um it seems like a it seems like a very plausible story. Yeah, and I know Clooney's not going to spend his time on that. You know, so that makes sense to me. Why do you think that it, it sounds like he money is not like a big driver for him? Oh my God, he, he's told me this ever since I first interviewed him. And it, it blows my mind. He doesn't have any money in stocks or bonds. Like all of his money is in cash or real estate, which, you know, he just doesn't trust. He thinks it's like gambling. He got burnt early on with a money manager in his career who invested whatever in Enron or whatever the equivalent was back then. And he lost his money and he never, he thinks of uh, the stock market like Vegas without the tequila. I completely agree. All my really? money's in cash. All my money's in cash and real estate. That's insane. I see the, I see the, I see the publicly traded markets as a, as a place where very intelligent people who've created businesses go to over monetize their creations. Right to, to get paid. Monetize. What does that mean? Well, they just they're 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 getting to create valuations that wouldn't hold up under the scrutiny of their own money. Like they don't they wouldn't say like Elon Musk if he was starting from scratch would never buy Tesla stock with his money where it sits today. He'd he go did? create Tesla. Well, no, he created Tesla at a valuation of zero and put a bunch of money to risk at a valuation of whatever money he put to risk, a hundred million or who knows what. And then he parlayed that growth into a company that that's now worth hundreds of billions. But remember when he wouldn't take uh, any money or any salary and instead took that crazy gamble on his own business, that it would be worth some genius move. Insane move. I mean, we, we, we call genius is often like, you know, Ted Turner down there. It's that kind of entrepreneurial craziness where you're like, you have more than your great grandkids will ever need, and yet you still risk it all. I mean, that's crazy. Um, but no, well, except not, for that, the, the psychology of an entrepreneur, you have to somewhere early in your entrepreneurial yeah. journey come to terms with the fact that if you're right, everybody's going to say you're a genius, but you're not. You're, you know, you did just all work. And if you're wrong, everybody's going to call you a fool for the risk yeah. you took, and you're not. It just didn't work out. And so. I think one of the reasons why those guys feel so comfortable taking those big, bold risks is that, that, that long before they came to terms with the fact that the outcome of this decision doesn't define my soul or define my personhood or define my ego or define whatever. And they're just willing to take bigger risks than most people. What you're saying is very appealing on a logical standpoint, but Ted Turner and Elon Musk, Steve Jobs do not seem like people divorced, like their ego is divorced from their success. They seem like people very tied to the success. So maybe I'm wrong. I don't know them. Well, I think that the, the guy now, listen, I mean, Ted has certainly a reputation in the South of having a pretty big ego. Um, I don't know Elon Musk personally to know what kind of ego he had. Obviously the jobs, all the, the writings about jobs would say he had a pretty big ego. Although 
my sense is, and all the things I read about Jobs and the things I read about Elon, is that what their ego is really tied to is their imagination. And so the idea of stop of not being able to imagine and not be able to try to make things come into existence that didn't exist before is more what their ego is tied to than the success, which is, I think, what makes them a little bit like kind of mad scientists in that regard is that they don't have any desire to just be rich and then go around the world flaunting their wealth and having their ego stroked for their success. They want to continue to innovate and continue to imagine and it's the imagination that really defines their or, or has so much connection to their ego. I could be yeah. wrong, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I know when, when the Lisa failed, Jobs wasn't in a good place. I, I don't think he just shrugged that off. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I really don't know, but it's a, it's a good question. So uh, creative, speaking of imagination and creativity, what's going on with Funny or Die? Oh, oh God. Um, that, You've been creating stuff there, haven't you? No, I just made one thing. I love those guys. And the CEO of Funny or Die, guy Mike Farah, is just, he's almost like one of those people we're talking about entrepreneurially. He, I don't think I've ever worked with someone who's so good at making things happen, even when everyone's saying no to him. Uh, and in the case of the thing we made, he probably should have listened because I don't think many people saw it. But the idea was, do you remember these shows like I Love the 80s or I Love the 90s that were popular yes. in case one? Or yes. <laughs> yes. I, I used to be in those and... I had this idea for a long time that we should do I Love the Trump Administration and just get commentators. The idea is that so much happened over four years. And I know my, my 11-year-old son looks at the news in the morning on the, his like Alexa uh, video thing, and he's, he uh, misses Trump because it's so boring now. So yeah, I think so much happened in those four years of administration that people just forgot, you know, all the details. Like you could mention, uh, I had somebody on the tip of them, you know, Sean Spicer hiding in the bushes, or you could, there's so many things that we, the government shut down, like big things we had just forgotten because so much was happening every week that um, I thought you could put it all together just to remind people of, of, you know, before they voted of what had happened. And so, so we made it like a couple of weeks before the election. And it was just a bunch of really famous people Kiki Palmer and uh, Cheryl Hines and going over the, you know, four years of the election and these short kind of videos for funny or die. And no one was interested. I mean, it's one of, like you said, you make things and you try to tie them to your ego. And I, I can tell I've been doing stuff long enough where I know most things I make are going to be flops. And, and this was definitely one of them. Like nobody was interested in any humor of any kind before that election. This is a deadly serious time in America. And you, and that's what you that attribute the lack of engagement around those ideas is that everybody's just like, I can't deal with. No, I mean, but, you can't blame. I mean, I don't know. I never know why things fail. There's, there's different elements. One's timing. I definitely think we got the timing wrong. Like we did this a year before it would have been better, but it also may not just not have been a very good idea. The execution may not have been perfect. Like it, it's hard to tell when you fail what it is for me at least. But you didn't have any idea that, the timing might be bad prior to releasing it. No, but when we were pitching it to different networks, that we they definitely said that. So and we didn't listen. So um, and Funny or Die was just crazy part. enough to do it. Yeah, yeah, they found some like individual investors. Like, it was pretty crazy. Do you think? I mean, this is kind of like a jump off of the of the Trump thing. 
which I always, I love your take on this kind of stuff, but I'd love to hear your take. Do you think Donald Trump should be convicted of sedition? Sedition. My general overall feeling without getting into specifics, which I think much smarter people who've thought about this more than me have. I'll just say there's a, there's a, here's the debate. And it's a good one. In a democratic society, you do not want to imprison or use the judicial system to punish your political enemies. Like that is a sure road to fascism. You know, lock her up, you know, or put Trump in jail are bad, bad emotional ideas that, that you see in third world dictatorships. So, I, so I'm very wary of wanting to do anything like that. Um, now, on the other hand, truth and reconciliation after events that you find to be against, unacceptable to your democracy, are worthy. So what is the line between those two things? Does that even make sense what I'm saying? No, I, yeah, no, I, I, okay. I, I see the, I see the line. I mean, I see the arguments on both sides. Yeah. I'm just, so, I was, I, I'm mostly just fascinated kind of your take on yeah, what actually happened. I'm very cautious. I, I would think, yes, you totally want to have some kind of commission on the Capitol, storm, storming the Capitol. Like for sure, that's that's not about imprisoning Trump. The the my instinct is to leave that guy alone and and try to repair some structural things and not make it a personal thing against Trump. Half the country likes that guy, um, you know, and, and so you, you you're not going to indict half your country. Can you make some structural changes to make sure presidents don't become dictators? Yeah, that's a you know. We, we've gone backwards for the history of this country uh, compared to what it was supposed to be that way. So for sure, do that and um, and 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 look at what happened. But I don't know if making him a martyr and a scapegoat and starting a precedent where you look. I was against both impeachments as much as what I thought he did was wrong and illegal and fascistic. I didn't. Uh, I don't know if impeaching someone when half the country likes it is going to seem anything other than political. So, so I'd be careful with all of those things because I, my main concern is to keep this country a democracy. I'd be it's interested just, to. It's rare. If you think about democracies, like how long have we been around? And, we, and we're probably number two in history, right? Of, of all of human history, we're probably the second longest democracy. And we're, and we're inching up on ancient Greece. Like how long was ancient Greece really a true democracy? And, you know, obviously not even a true democracy had to be landed, et cetera. But even then, what they had they didn't have 400 years. So what our country, like people keep saying, like, we'll get through this. We've gotten through other things. Like our country is three Joe Bidens old. It's that's not a long time. And it's almost fallen apart a couple of times. Not, <laughs> wait a minute. Wait, wait, I guess you're how old is Joe Biden? Seventy six. Right. Yeah. I don't know. My math's close. It's only. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It's not, so I it's think not, about my dad yeah, it's all the much time. More, it's not much more than three Joe Biden. That's amazing. Three people. We've, we've been around for three people. I think about my dad, who's 80, you know, and in fine shape and knows a lot about history and tells me America has been through all this and knows way more about history than me. I'm just like, it's not, it's, th- it's not even three of you old. Like, it's not a long time. The people who don't think you have okay. to fight for democracy in every generation, again, of which there's been three people. You have to, it doesn't come easy. People are tribal. Like, look at the world now. Most people don't live in a democracy. Look at history. Almost no one lives in a democracy. Like, this is not the natural course of people. People are tribal. People want a strong man to fight for their tribe. And so 
you have to fight for this democracy every generation or you're going to lose it. And I think I, I get very disappointed with Americans not thinking that this thing has been around forever and will be around forever because it won't. And, and you're going to lose it at some point, And it takes just one big mistake to lose a democracy. I don't disagree with that at all. I mean, I think yeah. that is so right on. Um, fundamentally, and by the way, the people who stormed the Capitol believe that. I, I, I agree. Now, I don't know for sure who were all the people storming the Capitol, because it does seem bizarre to call what happened an insurrection when guys are in buffalo costumes without no guns. okay so i completely disagree with you because okay tell me <laughs> that's what i i wanted to get here <laughs> the one thing that i really feel was mistaught to me in hebrew school in documentaries in history class was the third reich because it looks super scary right if this looks i mean you've seen pink floyd's the wall or any you know, any copy or Star Wars, it's super scary. It looks like it's, you know, every part of it, Hitler's mustache, his haircut, the flags, the goose-stepping, just looks like really uh, scary evil. And then when you read about these guys, like you read about the beer putsch, or you read about um, these guys cross-dressing in their homes, and you look at, and you, you start to look at Hitler's face and his outfit and compare it to even... Stalin, or you know, go to Yalta and look at pictures of everyone else. Hitler looks insane. This whole thing was made fun of. He was a joke. He, I mean, he was as silly as the guys in the horn with these patches and these outfits and these crazy haircuts. So I think we were, there's something about fascism that's often silly and fun and exciting and attracts people. And I think that's, we weren't taught that. So I don't think it's unusual. I mean, Trump is a very silly figure. I mean, I mean, he he sold himself that way. He's funny. He's you know the host of The Apprentice. He fires people. He puts memes of himself as Rocky. Like you don't think about strong men being silly, but they often are. And you equate, but the part that I'm struggling with, and and I I, I I'm, I'm with you on the on the Nazi side, on the Third Reich side, and I can see the how wild they look. And as you start to break it down, kind of how, how funny. I just had a hard time like taking any of those. I guess that's the point you're saying is that I just had a, such a hard time taking those people seriously. Cause like, no, they're ridiculous. The people in the beer ridiculous. hall were ridiculous too. I mean, a bunch of people met at a beer hall with a plan to like go into the building and kidnap everyone and get drunk first. Which, by the way, I can't believe these people didn't do. Like the first, if you're gonna have a ragtag group of crazy people storm a capital get them drunk first like that was that's why it was at a beer hall so you get these kind of ragtag angry silly dudes with this crazy wild plan i mean every killing lincoln was a crazy wild plan of misfits right like killing gretchen whitmer that probably could have happened like it's just a, it, they're not the kind of people who are attracted to this stuff initially are are on the outskirts of your society right um Although a lot of people who flew to the Capitol weren't. It was, it was interesting. They stayed in hotels. Like That's the part that freaked me out the most was when I saw pictures of people inside the Capitol. And I was like, that's a nice middle-aged lady. Like, what's she? And then I'd like find out, like, that's Jennifer from Becky's Flowers. Like, I didn't know that 
that people with pretty good normal lives do this kind of stuff. I thought it was just angry young men. Well, yeah, that that's the part that I just have a hard time processing that it was like very premeditated or if it just kind of all happened and people got caught up in it and went with well, it. Right. Some people yeah. had clear plans and brought equipment and were, you know, gonna kill Mike Pence and you know, some people had a real plan and other people were just there and went along with it. But that's true with I think most events. That there you know, there are leaders and followers. Yeah. I still also can't figure out how there wasn't more security around the, the place. I mean, you know, I, I've given this some thought and I don't know the answer. And I think there's many answers. And some of them have to do with racism. Some of them have to do with the power of the president uh, approving of this. But I think some of it is just that no one's seen this happen. Like, I just don't think anyone expected this um, at all. And it was so absolutely it, not. Yeah. So it's hard to prepare for things you you know you don't you don't expect people to fly a plane into a building like you just it's hard to prepare for these things that haven't happened well and how do you prepare i mean i I guess we've done a lot better job of preparing the planes to keep them from getting taken over and flown into buildings but it's basically impossible to avoid if if somebody has a plane and has control of the plane so keep them from flying into a building would be a very difficult thing to do yeah and scramble jets if you've never down, seen it please. before, you know, these are disruptive ideas. Um, storming the Capitol in America is a disruptive idea. No one's done it. Well, you know, one of my buddies wrote a, um, a, a movie and, and made the movie with Sean Penn years ago. And uh, it was actually an amazing cast of, of people because, you know, Don Cheadle was in this movie and uh, Sean Penn. It was called The Assassination of Richard Nixon. And there's some actually very, very cool scenes in this in this movie. It didn't do well. But the, the but the, the reason I bring it up is the whole premise of this movie is based on a true story about a guy who plotted to hijack an airplane and fly it into the White House and kill Richard Nixon. Whoa. And this Yeah, it happened in the seventies. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, I know right? there was a bunch of like really rich business guys who approached America's top general um, right after Hoover lost the election about this weird insurrection where they were going to overthrow FDR and have military rule. And he'd still technically be the president, but he wouldn't have any power. And they approached this general. And, and, and th- as so many times in our country's history, the military remained apolitical and said, no, absolutely not. I won't have anything to do with this. But there, there was money behind it. They were going to pay 500,000 soldiers. Like, there's, there's been plans before, uh, but not even just some guy trying to kill Nixon, which I'm sure, you know, I can't imagine every president doesn't have some crazy person who tried to kill him, especially Nixon. But yeah, there's definitely, there's plenty of that in this country. Well, Joel, I could sit and talk to you for hours and hours. You did. I believe you did. I know. I, I know. <laughs> Unfortunately, my producers are telling me I've gone over time like double. All right. I got to shut it Good. down. But uh, amazing as always. Thank you for being on the program. If people want to get a hold of you, that's way call to me find here. you on the internet. Just call me right here. <laughs> What's your number? <laughs> this is my landline. So <laughs> I know. Good luck having me answer it. I'm a 90-year-old man with a landline. <laughs> so good. All right, Joel. Thanks for the time. Let's do it again. Always cool. love nice to you. All right, All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm Ryan Millsap. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap. Thank you.